This is Swampside Chats. A podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss five articles by Rosa Luxemburg, which were originally grouped together into a book called The National Question, Selected Writings. This is also available under the section The National Question under Rosa Luxemburg on Marxists.org. Yeah, we're going to be discussing the national question. Um, we read uh, Rosa Luxemburg's 1909 essay on the national question, and it's very interesting. And uh, just to kind of put things in um, historical context, there are two social democratic parties in Poland, and um, you had the uh, PPS, the Polish Social Democracy, and then you had Rosa Luxemburg's um, Social Democracy in the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania, which was her separate party, and they actually split based on the question of Polish nationalism, because the PPS, the larger socialist party, thought that, you know, basically we should be nationalist and support primarily Polish independence before all else, and independence from Russia is the most, you know, that should that that should be, you know, our prime a prime part of our minimum program. Whereas Luxembourg, in the uh, social democracy of uh, the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania, really long name, but um, her and Dzerzhinsky, um, their Felix Dzerzhinsky was a member of that party, and they were actually kind of, um, I don't know, McNair kind of calls them a predecessor of the microsect, because he kind of says that, um, you know, rather than forming a faction around their views on nationalism within the larger socialist party, they kind of just formed their own socialist party over this issue. He doesn't think that it was, you know, necessary worth worth splitting over this issue of Polish nationalism, and so when Rosa Luxemburg writes about this stuff, it's really the the case of Polish nationalism is really influencing a lot of what she's um, thinking about and describing. Yeah, just as a point of information here, what's normally called quote the national question is really a series of articles. Um, called the National Question and Autonomy, or I guess there's a couple of other names for it. And I think there's like a sixth essay that's not usually read that we also usually didn't read. So yeah, just note about the text. Yeah, there also is a part in um, her text on the Russian Revolution about the National Question. And I think that there actually is a difference in here between her views on the National Question and her views in text on the Russian Revolution. Because she kind of straight out, like, um, she kind of says that the age of national revolutions is outdone. And there's no longer any progressive role that nationalism can play historically. And that's now the age of proletarian revolutions. Yeah, that's not her position here. Yeah, here she is basically making a more nuanced point, I think. Which is essentially that, you know... The idea, she's basically critiquing the, the idea of the right of nations to self-determination as a programmatic point. Because she's saying, that's basically saying every national aspiration that exists, you basically have to give, you know, entertainment to. So therefore, 
you know, for example, we have to entertain Breton separatists in France. She kind of says that rather than looking at, you know, just having a universal principle, we have to look at the concrete case and then say, you know, who are the progressive forces and who are the regressive social forces here? And so I think that kind of gives, I think that's the way Marx looked at the national question, actually. Like, I think that, um, and she kind of shows that, you know, Marx didn't always defend the right of nations of self-determination, even though in other cases he did, for an example of Ireland and Poland, ironically, but also India. Yeah, since these arguments are often cited against, like, uh, anti-colonial nationalism or, uh, you know, indigenous resistance, I kind of expected to be cringing more during this text. And it seems for the most part to be limiting itself to movements towards autonomy within the capitalist world at the time in which she means, you know, Euro land and the U S because of the indigenous genocide going on in the United States. I don't think that this is enough of a commentary on, on nationalism and the national question more generally for the United States, but in Europe, it's pretty interesting, more nuanced than I expected. And I did find a couple clauses where it appears she does not approve of colonialism and imperialism. She considers it sort of a, a natural phase in the development of the capitalist nation state, but does not seem to actually apologize for it in the kinds of cases that she's often invoked during. Yeah, she makes it very clear that the core of a socialist uh, attitude towards the national question needs to be based in, you know, in all-encompassing opposition to national oppression of all kinds. Yeah, I did find her position on Poland kind of hard to parse between the fifth essay, where she seems to be kind of arguing in favor of Polish autonomy. Um, but maybe she means, you know, I don't know, we could discuss that. Maybe we should go section by section. Well, I think with her argument towards Polish autonomy, she's basically saying that, like, it's now a reactionary cause because of the class forces behind it, which are now the Polish aristocracy. So primarily the movement for Polish autonomy is, you know, taken over by reactionary class forces. And so therefore the only way that you can, that Poland can achieve like, you know, basically national, you know, freedom or liberation or whatever is through a revolution that's also in league with the Russian revolution or the Russian revolution. And I think the 1905 revolution in Russia really influenced her views on this, I think, because it showed that revolution in Russia was possible. She sort of narrates the ignoble fate of Polish nationalism, where it starts out more of an aristocratic affair than a bourgeois affair, um, then is undermined in its material base and in ideology by the bourgeois. But then second phase was it gets appropriated by like petty bourgeois. And then the third phase was this attempt at fusing it to proletarian politics and creating a, a social patriot party out of it. And she thinks these things all fail. Yeah. I mean, I think that the best part of um, the first part, at least the right of nations of self-determination is where she kind of critiques the idea that social patriotism and, and the idea of combining nationalism and socialism, basically. Yeah, this is in the second part of the second chapter, the one called The Nation-State and the Proletariat. Yeah, this is, um, I think that uh, 
that was that was one of the stronger points of this. And I think her just general approach and saying we have to look at each case individually and look at what you know is on the table. In fact, the right is saying all nations have a right to self-determination doesn't actually answer that question. And we had to do you actually had to do a deeper analysis. I do want to back back up a little bit though, because she does some standard I don't know if I'm going to say left con, but kind of Marxist deflationary things about rights versus dialectical materialism that autumn just right off the bat sort of made me a little cagey about where she was hey going man, with you, that. You think you got rights? You think you got rights? Wake up. <laughs> Wake up. Yeah. Yeah. She kind of has like a, she had kind of has kind of anti-democratist actual kind of tinge to it where she says, oh, these ideas of rights are just, you know, abstract things. And I think that, you know, I believe that, you know, I think that you do have to answer the question of democratic rights of nationalities. And I think formulating it in the sense of democratic rights makes sense in a lot of cases because there are national inequalities that are a product of, you know, this repression of one minority by another and the domination of one nation by another. But there's also an economic element to it as well because there's also the fact that modern day, you know, imperialism essentially relies on an equal division of labor and unequal development in the world. So there's, you can't completely solve the question of national oppression just through the question of rights, but you also have to, you know, look at the uneven world division of labor in general and address that. And so, I mean, I think Luxembourg is right. So it's, it's only from the framework of a world socialist republic that we can actually understand that we can actually solve the national question. Fine. But when people use these deflationary uses of, of democracy, national freedom, equality, and just sort of tar them before the historical dialectical, you know, un unrolling that makes it's a flux that turns it's uh, there's no essence to things. There's no, Nothing is inherently one way or the other, and it's all situational. Like, um, I do think she sacrifices too much. Uh, yeah, she sacrifices kind of a Republican ethic that we can apply here. Because the idea of Republicanism is that, you know, all people are equal. No one person has the inherent right to rule over another person. And so, therefore, we can extend that to nations and say no nation has the inherent right to rule over another nation. And but so doesn't Marx do the exact same thing in critique of Goethe program? Like essentially, like in terms of talking about he criticizes La Seal for like talking about rights. Well, I think that uh, in inequality. A way, at the same time, it's true. It's the same time you can read stuff that Marx wrote for the first international. For example, he will he says stuff like no rights without duties, no duties without rights. And stuff like that. There's all all throughout the um, he talks about you know just general. Uh, he calls them um, a general human morality, for example, in one instance. And you could say, oh well, that was just Marx writing for a popular audience. But I think there's this, the fact that we live in bourgeois society makes bourgeois rights a thing that we have to deal with. And really, to I, and, and I'd say Marx does critique the idea of bourgeois rights and the Gotha critique. But then he says that the first phase of communism will still have aspect of bourgeois right. So I think really the critique of bourgeois right is more in 
it needs to be fulfilled, but also transcended. Well, yeah, because like oftentimes, like phraseology around rights will be from a perspective that's like devoid of class content, right? So, so it's like it's like trying to imagine, you know, it's sort of like early Enlightenment stuff. Whereas, you know, right. advent of historical materialism means that it's situated from a specifically from like a class context. And there's actually a quote a little bit earlier here um, where she. Um, this kind of outlines something about the methodology here that I think is useful. In point of fact, the political programs of the modern workers' parties do not aim at stating abstract principles of a social ideal, but only at the formulation of those practical social and political reforms which the class-conscious proletariat needs and demands in the framework of bourgeois society to facilitate the class struggle and their ultimate victory. The elements of a political program are formulated with definite aims in mind to provide a direct, practical, and feasible solution to the crucial problems of political and social life, which are, in the areas of class struggle of the proletariat, to serve as a guideline for everyday politics and its needs, to initiate the political action of the Workers' Party and lead it in the right direction, and finally, to separate the revolutionary politics of the proletariat from the politics of the bourgeois and petite bourgeois parties. The formula, the rights of nations to self-determination, of course, does not have such a character at, at all. It gives no practical guidelines to the day-to-day -day politics of the proletariat, nor any practical solution uh, of nationality problems. So, yeah, I mean, it seems, you know, it, she's basically just... It's basically, she's outlining here a methodology by which a workers' party, you know, adopts and states its aims and that they have to be situated in the, you know, historical context of its moment. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the that's the guts of what's real about what she's saying. So it's almost like a methodology of revolutionary reformism. What I disagree with is the philosophical underpinning there in that um, it's, it's funny, like a lot of times these philosophical positions and political positions will assume to be identical, right? So I agree that, you know, you can't just rely on uh, right of nation and you have to like be kind of realistic and consider the outlook, uh, the prospects for what's going on. But when she's citing Marx and, and, and citing Kautsky and, or, and talking about the way that social democracy was, you know, supported the Turkish state, right? And, and was very consistent about this, you know? Uh, I guess I don't, I don't know the whole situation. Maybe the South Slavs seeking their liberty, maybe, you know, there really was a cause worthy of contempt and, you know, truly reactionary. I don't know. <laughs> um, there is something about this that, you know, that the, the anarchist view that she's criticizing. Yeah. It's, there's something, something that seems a bit more uh, attractive to me about, uh, about that latter view. It's the view of internationalism that I, I've come to associate with like the better left comms and where like bourgeois right is obviously insufficient within, you know, like, national boundaries, the idea that there would actually be some kind of equality between nations in any sense, it, it seems a bit more, I don't know, seems a little more radical than an account like this is giving it credit for. Yeah, I think that instead of self-determination, I think equality of nations is a better principle because it's still, you know, it's, it's basically the idea that one nation does not have the inherent right to oppress another so therefore, it's a framework that exists within bourgeois society. But the point is, is that we have to, that nation states aren't going to just disappear in one big millenarian revolution. They're going to wither away, just like the state is going to wither away over time 
after proletariat eventually seizes power on a global scale, and then nation states will wither away. So the question is, how do we, how do we, be, how do we situate ourselves with this long-term goal in mind, but still address the existing national oppression that you know that does exist? And that mean, can, can, there, can, can there really be? And equality of nations, though, I mean, within a bourgeois framework, I mean, that seems like a utopian demand to me. Well, right. Something like the UN, you know, that would gesture towards something like it's that. It's not really, I wouldn't call it a demand so much as just like a general philosophical principle upon which to think of demands. So, for example, you would say, you know, the Kurds should have their own, you know, schools that are in their own language. They should be able to participate in politics in their own language. They should, should have full rights as a national group wow you're so so idealist donald well no i'm just you know i'm just saying (laughs) those are the actual concrete political things you would fight for well like the the general principle is the equality of nations i i agree with you insofar as that i think the like the way kautsky and even marx talk about like languages and cultures disappearing the way luxembourg can write off like you know yiddish attempts at yiddish nationalism uh, it's just funny because Yiddish national, like not yeah. necessarily Yiddish nationalism, but just the language of Yiddish right, right. was so core to the formation of the U.S. socialist movement. Yeah, like and and <laughs> Marx predicting that the Czechs would disappear. Yeah, yeah, and, and I uh, mean, I the, think her- the other thing, the, but the main thing is, I think it was Kautsky who's kind of celebrating uh, the vanishing of some national languages. There's. Just something constitutionally about my intuitions that doesn't well you know, doesn't here. like the way it comes across when people like want to see national traditions vaporize. Well, he says that there are three great cultural communities of humanity developed simultaneously: the Christian, the Muslim, and the Buddhist. So basically, he says that like all three of these general groups will become dominant enough to where anyone can learn their language, the general language. I guess, I guess he, he says there'll basically be three major world languages, depending on how these different groups develop. And once you have like free schooling, everyone can learn those languages. And so it's, I think it's, it's more so that like these linguistic cultures won't disappear so much as they'll be more like museum relics, I guess. They won't be necessary within political context, I guess. Yeah, I th- just just a lot of glibness around it that strikes me after you know, just 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 strikes me wrong. You know, it yeah. it, it doesn't gel with my intuitions as a communist, and the position well, she's making fun of is something a little more <laughs> that 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 I think is is ultimately the the communist position that carries the century in part because of what she's talking about when you get really into international relations realism and you realize oh every national every attempt at nationhood has these uh you know is being puppeted by different states and is really a um really like the MacGuffin. it's it's a substitute for the na- the national interests of big states i mean it's undoubtedly true but um but just because you know i don't know the the russians might like to see you know, a big chunk of the United States get into, you know, indigenous hands or something, right? Like, I don't think that's the main, I don't know if that's the main point there. I think, 
I think what part of what's contributing to your reaction is that kind of sentiment never comes from, from somebody who's like celebrating the disillusion of like their own language or culture. You know what I mean? No, never. No, Kowski no. Was, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, you it's, never it's, see someone sitting around going like, yeah, this place is a dump. This culture's bullshit. Bring on, bring on yeah. homogenization. I, mean, I, I don't know. I would celebrate the downfall of American culture. Oh, yeah, obviously, like if we're speaking Chinese in 30 years, I won't. I'll I'll be the first person cheering that on. You know, I'm not really going to bawl my eyes out, guess. but but we're, we're not we're not talking about dominant cultures. We're talking about smaller cultures and even ones in, in Europe, even ones in Europe. You know what I mean? Like that. Well, I think that the way I look at it is you have to have integration rather than assimilation to one. And this is what I think this is the problem that Luxembourg doesn't address is that. It can easily, these positions can easily be used to justify assimilationism to a greater power. For example, um, in the Georgian affair in 1923, towards the time of Lenin's death, when Stalin's starting to gain more power in the party, they have one last really big disagreement, which is over Georgia, which kind of had its own, they actually had like a part Menshevik government, and they kind of wanted like a degree of autonomy from the Soviet Union and the ability to have their own linguistic rights and have their you know own cultural rights. And Stalin basically said that they should be russified, that they should be forced to speak Russian, et cetera, you know, learn the Russian culture and they should have to be like kind of just assimilated to the greater power. Whereas Lenin basically argued, no, you can't bring socialism to people on colonial bayonets, essentially. That if you have, you know, a group that's oppressed by a larger nation and you attempt to basically like you you enforce like socialism on them is not going to work. And because- Stalin, Stalin is kind of uneven about this because there's a whole part of like uh, the Middle East that he just carves up relatively arbitrarily that in a really crazy force population transfer, ethnic cleansing kind of way that that very end of the book seems like a chilling indictment of what Stalin was about to do. Uh, under in the name of the rights of these nations so, it's, so there i mean there really is something to her critique um well at the same time though stalin by forcing like you know georgia to assimilate to russia in the name of socialism you're essentially seeing what you could like future aspects of russian chauvinism that you know take a huge part of stalin like, build, like make up a huge part of stalinism you know and this kind of you know Russian nationalism that Stalin basically perfects after the war, which you know was after World War II when basically you had the height of like national Bolshevism essentially. Yeah, Stalin is kind of the worst of both worlds in that regard. Where yeah, he has great Russian chauvinism, and then his attempts to make good on Lenin's you know approach to the national question or or what he what he derives from Lenin on the national question and critiques Lenin on the national question, like ends up to be this exact kind of like a parody of like, like a parody of, of the nations that might've like wanted national autonomy is when you just carve out a land, divide a bunch of peoples that exist and shove them together and be like, now you're Kazakh or, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's like a parody of, of nation for, for yeah, formation. It, it, it's kind of like what the United States did to like native peoples, essentially. Yeah. It's just shove them onto reservate, kick them off their land slowly. But actually, it's done quicker. So it's an e- it's kind of an even worse version of that. It's just shove them onto these reservations, and you know, 
I mean, I guess Eden tried to Russianize them like the Americans did with the reservation system or whatever. Yeah, what what the Soviet Union ends up doing in like the Middle East with with like smaller cultures is enough to like scare a lot of post-colonial scholars or whatever away from anything that smells like mustache. <laughs> I mean, at the I'm, same time, like I think that you know, the Soviet Union had a very cynical and opportunist like attitude towards, you know, post-colonial nations and, you know, people struggling for their independence. For example, they didn't really, they didn't help out. They didn't support Algeria, for example. Yeah. Which is like, okay, you know, that's, that's a total example of a case where, you know, national liberation is on the side of progress, in my opinion. Like you have people who've been colonized by the French are essentially like seen by the French as an integral part of France. Like they don't, like Algeria didn't exist in the minds of the French, but it obviously existed in the minds of millions of other people. And so I guess, and this gets into my problem with like a lot of the just general dismissals of all national liberation, is they don't actually look at why it happens, why millions of people organize around the national cause to overthrow, you know, a colonial power you know it's it's you know it's the fact of the matter is you don't have like a politic you don't even have a population that's proletarianized and has enough political freedom to even struggle for communism in the colonies so it's just absurd to say that you know these, these colonized majority peasant you know nations should you know rebel in the name of communism it just doesn't make sense Right. Well, I mean, um, a lot of them did rebel in the name of in the name of communism. Well, and that's the thing. I was kind of thinking about this earlier today, in a way, because colonialism basically regresses the development of capitalism. It basically, in order to keep a you know cheap labor supply, it basically ensures the reproduction of traditional, you know, forms of um, labor, in order to basically you know keep. It's in order to basically, you know, keep a cheap labor supply. And it also just, you know, you see the use of genocide and um, famine as weapons against these populations. And so really, like, it's a very destructive and wasteful form of accumulation really compared to, you know, normal capitalism. And so I think that, you know, the proletariat doesn't really develop so much as you have a, just like a class of, maybe semi-proletarianized producers, small producers, and then you have like maybe a small national bourgeoisie. But in the countries where you hardly had any kind of national bourgeoisie, you just had mostly peasant revolutions. And it made sense that they would take up the mantle of Stalinism in that sense because of land reform and, of course, support from the Soviet Union. Yeah, and the, the Soviet Union was like the only politically... The only political block anywhere with any kind of standing that was actually like advocating for the rights, at least on paper, of like you know, the th the third world. Well, the U.S. was as well. That's the thing is that the U.S. promised like, oh, you know, we'll help the world achieve independence. You know, we'll give you loans through the IMF and stuff. And so that's what a big part of the Cold War. They weren't really following through on it, though. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. The I mean, Americans. Yeah, they because yeah, exactly. And the fact that the Americans wanted to contain communism when communism actually had a lot of attraction 
in the third world from the peasant masses. And I think it was because you had a larger, you know, you had, I think it's basically because you have, if you have a weak national bourgeoisie and you have an independence movement against colonialism, it's more likely to kind of take a, um, a Stalinist path. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's a very visible model of state directed, uh, accumulation, investment, development. Yeah, because well, the, the Soviet Union was literally like training people in their methods and in, like their methods of political rule, even to a certain extent. So, so yeah, yeah, like um, for example, in Cuba, like they sent KGB people down there to train the security service in Cuba. But the problem is, is that like a lot of these Soviet-aligned post-colonial nations saw the Soviet Union as being like essentially kind of a um, basically just chauvinist essentially this russian chauvinism this great russian chauvinism kind of still manifested it wasn't really imperialism so much as just like they kind of had an attitude that our system is the best you have to do things according to us so you know there wasn't really a lot of toleration of any kind of creativity for example in a lot of these countries right and the soviet model was kind of imposed and it wasn't necessarily the most desirable model. It might have been the best thing possible, but I don't know. It's 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 a tough question. Yeah, I'm going to say it probably wasn't the best thing possible, but that's a discussion for another day. I mean, but see, what was the alternative was? The alternative was like something like South Korea, where you have like huge neoliberal austerity policies imposed and massive primitive accumulation by an authoritarian state create a really successful capitalist development you could say well you know the stalinist model basically did that but i mean it's for example it's just i think that it's more promising to the peasant i think in what it offers than like something like what the u.s had on offer well look might might have been true for what was you know available in political actors but um if you have some kind of uh, South Korean style East Asian tiger economy. Like, <sighs> okay, in the 70s, you're, you're right, right? Like uh, North Korea is doing better than South Korea in the 80s. In the yeah, 90s, exactly. But at in, a certain in the point, 2000s. Well, that's in, the problem the with the Stalinist model. And that's why all these post-colonial Stalinist countries have adapted, you know, markets. And that's, you know is the truth of it. Like, I think North Korea really is, even North Korea is like developing markets and making China style reforms from my understanding. Yeah. So it becomes, you know, this is the point Whereas, like this system really doesn't serve the elite anymore. And so it makes more sense to kind of have a revolution from above and marketize for the sake of right. national development. Yeah. Well, and uh, Stalinism looked like a lot more impressive uh, too in like the period, like the mid 20th century period of, you know, anti-colonial, pretty much the end of the colonial area, really, because I mean, there even U.S. planners even thought the Soviet system was more efficient at the time, simply because of, like the massive like leaps they made in terms of industrial development. So it makes a lot of sense that it would have in that particular period, you know, an an attractive serve as a potential yeah. attractive model for, uh, you know, third world for decolon uh, decolonial revolutions. Well, it promises basically the ability to have development in autarky at the same time. Like, yeah, you do have dependence, you know, trade with the Soviet Union, but essentially like it promises you a really rapid, 
like domestic industrialization and that little cost as advertised. And obviously this isn't the case, but it does promise this kind of, you know, massive buildup in a short period of time of industry. And it's well still like, you know, not having deal with the um, realities of the global market, you know, because I think the nationalization of property does somewhat shield the nation state from the global marketplace. And so that allows it to kind of take a path of development that isn't dictated by it. So it had that kind of promise for a lot of the anti-colonial revolutions. So um, maybe we should take this opportunity to backpedal a little bit and kind of go over some of the argument that she makes regarding Kautsky's, like uh, Kautsky's three roots of the modern national idea. Um, yeah. It's to assure a domestic market political democratic freedom and the expansion of a natural national literature and culture, popular culture. Um, in that second essay, she ends up making the argument that that first thing proletariat kind of doesn't give a shit about. Um, but you know, the other two, uh, political democratic freedom, expansion of national literature and culture to the people. These are the important things. Um, I find this an interesting argument because it kind of go it grates against what we know of labor politics that it does that there it doesn't matter if there's a domestic market. Um, in fact, it it's kind of an inversion of what we see today. Like the, the bourgeois don't really care <laughs> about the domestic market, and, and proletarians, you know, will often care desperately. <laughs> um, well, she's talking about like I mean, Kotsky and, and and she are basically talking about the emergent structures of European nationalism in the nineteenth and early twentieth century. Oh yeah, right? uh, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm aware. Yeah, so like the forms of nationalism that you see in like different historical periods and locations are going to be different, you know. Like I, 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 I reading this, I, I was kind of questioning this formulation as like a universal rule. Um, yeah, so. because I think it's really like national formation is. Nations are constituted in political projects, essentially, of ruling classes. But they are also are based on a unified linguistic concept. And so essentially nations are, you know, kind of ruling class projects to unify a disparate group of ethnicities under a common national banner in the cause of overthrowing a monarchy, for example, or um, overthrowing a colonial oppressor, or, you know, separating from, a, you know, a different group, for example. So I think that it's, it's just important to see how much the idea of nationality is something that is socially created, but it's a real thing that has real, you know, impact on the masses. And well, I my, think, yeah. My point isn't just like, ha, gotcha, Rosa. You're wrong about 2018. It, it's more along the lines of um, how nationalism has changed. Um, yeah. And and how you know as the continuing appeal, it's the phrase du jour, you know, <laughs> uh, why this keeps reappearing, and especially as we're kind of choking on uh, some of the or choking on the DSA at the moment, kind of trying to understand where nationalism gets its organic emergent appeal within bourgeois society. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and for, for, th for that reason, I guess, yeah, I, not, not only was 
her position on the national question, whatever its merits, and it does have significant merits. Not only was this kind of like too wild for, for the time that it was written in, um, you know, today, for some reason, these things seem even more tied than ever. Like I've, I've spoken, I remember talking to friend's dad who does like oil trading trading and you know when trump started putting tariffs on different industries he had a conniption and he was kind of venting to me about it you know he's he mentions you know i've always been by conviction an internationalist um this guy's from norway right so he has that social democratic tradition but this guy's like an oil like a guy moving around like large sums of oil from his connecticut home you know what i mean <laughs> there's something about that versus the uh, being stuck in an area, trying to be proud of wherever you're from, uh, that sticks in my craw as being like the most important consideration with contemporary nationalism and 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 trying to do a, a non-nationalist socialist politic. I mean, I think we should make a distinction between like just straightforward nationalism and nationalism of the oppressed because there's obviously different motivations in terms of like the like Palestinian nationalism and American nationalism, and, like yeah, that's exactly. Something that we should take into consideration. Yeah, I mean, and people will go mad at you for saying that. I just say, well, there is no such thing as good nationalism. It's always bad. But the fact of the matter is, in certain historical contexts, nationalism can obviously play a progressive role. There's no Marxist questions that the French Revolution was overall a progressive thing in society, or the American Civil War, but these were all nationalist projects. So, you know, Marxist, if you're a real Marxist, you have you can't just say anything that's nationalist can't be progressive. And so the argument that I think a lot of left and you know left comms make is that yes, you know, for example, before 1914 or 1919 or whatever, nationalism could still be progressive, but now we're in a phase of decadence or the overthrow of capitalism has been possible. So anything that's not the overthrow of capitalism is, you know, reactionary. And so therefore all of the national liberation struggles after World War II and the complete decolonization of Europe has no historical significance whatsoever, was not a step forward, was, you know, just meaningless, essentially just restacking the decks. But if we look at how much post-colonialism has shaped, you know, the nature of world capital, it just makes no sense at all to, you know, just act like there was nothing important that happened there. And it was just the restacking of the decks. But really what happens is you go from a world based on colonial empires to a world based on, you know, formally independent nation states for the most part. And so that completely transforms the possibilities of global capitalist development. Because as I said before, nationalism retards capitalist development and so therefore, you know, the overthrow of colonialism allows, you know, the creation of a, of a truly international proletariat. So you can truly have like an actual internationalism now because you finally have an actual world proletariat. Because under colonialism, you didn't really have, you had mostly peasants. These were peasant majority countries. And that's really, I think that's why those kind of revolutions happened instead of the global revolution that Luxembourg and perhaps Trotsky envisioned. Right. Which, yeah, I mean, 
I mean, those sort of divisions still exist today, like not under colonialism. I, I don't know how you would describe these. Like, set I, mean, I mean, yeah, you, you could describe as straight settler colonialism. Yeah, settler colonialism. You would describe Israel, Israel's relationship to Palestine as settler colonialism. And there's a visible difference between like the Palestinian proletariat and the Israeli proletariat in terms of like wealth, basic rights, things yeah, like that. Exactly. That just there's, yeah. that keep them from like being united and and the only way to like unite them is to try and address the issues either through some kind of level of autonomy and uh, national and like reparations, that sort of thing. And like, I believe that's like probably the only way to tackle issues like this is through like, I, like just a continue, like a combination between like Kotsky's overall position through like cultural integration into like a larger socialist civilization or society, uh, Austro-Hungarian, Austro-Marxist, Austro-Marxism's emphasis on like linguistic sovereignty in terms of well sovereignty and having like limited limited uh autonomy limited autonomy from like a social like for like oppressed minority it yeah. would be specifically for oppressed minorities and like, like for, for example revolution herds so that would be a good solution and revolutionary integrationism would which would emphasize the representation of oppressed minorities within like a broader national, uh, broader global socialist government and push towards their integration overall yeah. on a political level. Yeah. I think that really, I think looking at the national question today, we really need to look at the historical changes that have happened, understand why those historical changes happened. And then look at each different case in its historical circumstances in terms of their term and, you know, what the correct positions are. I don't think the left composition of just blanket denunciation of all national aspirations necessarily makes sense. Like, for example, Puerto Rico, that's a national question, for example, that exists in the U.S. And I think that, you know, my, my opinion on Puerto Rico is basically that they should be allowed to, you know, to have independence if they have if they, if they choose to, but if they want to integrate into the United States, they should also have that right. And right. overall, I think, you know, it's, it's, it should be determined through some kind of, you know, national referendum or something like that. Eh, maybe, I don't know. But there should be some kind of democratic determination of what the majority of Puerto Ricans want, and they should be allowed to either integrate or separate, essentially. Right. Like, the point of it is to like get them to integrate voluntarily rather than having it be like forced upon them like yeah. in the ways that it's been done in like the past in terms of like forced assimilation at like gunpoint yeah. and that's I think thing. I think integration is different from assimilation because I think right. that an actual actual like global revolutionary integration you wouldn't see a greater cultural power basically dominating a smaller one. It would be basically like both cultures, you know, act to develop each other on equal footing. And so it's not just an assimilation of a greater power. So integration does have to be done 
with you know the history of national oppression and the results of national oppression in mind it has to be part of the actual policies of the workers republic you know and it has to I be mean, it has to be done voluntarily i mean i think there would be like sort of a socialist global government that would be like over these individual nations yeah but it should be it should be like like a slow process of getting them to come in voluntarily rather like some kind yeah. of forced assimilation so That's, like they're allowed a... like autonomy uh trade is encouraged between like them and like the other nations that are cooperating with the over like global socialist government they're a part of it they get representation in it and they have some level of autonomy from it a lot that allows them to have their culture and that sort of thing but there's like an international culture that they're encouraged to be a part of not forced and that should like build upon it so. yeah and i well, think that's so that's, this this that's is the view of Engels too i would say because Engels specifically says that if england were to go socialist it couldn't force india to become socialist that you can't bring socialism to india on colonial bayonets and if England were to go socialist, its first thing to do would be to, you know, grant sovereignty to India and remove all British troops. You know, so just, I think uh, that just to interject about Puerto Rico, um, as I think this speaks to the point that you and uh, Rosa have been getting into, is that Puerto Ricans, when polled and when there's like reputable polling, um, when they do plebiscites, they overwhelmingly want statehood in the United States. They don't necessarily want like free association or independence uh the last like less uh the, the last referendum in 2012 that was like less controversial because the 2017 one was boycotted um statehood got 61 percent free association got like 33 percent independence got like five percent uh there was a narrow majority for people not wanting to continue its uh, current territorial status like so if, if we want, you know, th this is a perfect candidate for integration. Puerto Rico doesn't want independence, apparently, when polled, it wants to be a state, right? Like, yeah. That's, um, that's if, if, you know, we... And I think most of the concerns that people who want independence have are essentially losing their culture. But we've seen, you know, there already is essentially like a Puerto Rican part of American culture because of, you know... How much Puerto Rico, you know, immigrants to the United States, and so Puerto Ricans are already kind of a part of the U.S. culture in a way. So it makes it's it makes it so that it's not so much the assimilation of an oppressed nation by a greater power. It makes integration easier, essentially. I think. Although I will say that in the polls in '93, uh, they were basically split between statehood and being a uh, commonwealth. And then yeah. in in 1967, it was co Commonwealth over statehood. So maybe this is just the ideal would be you know, hegemony. integrated into a workers' republic, because you know if you know, you could say that if the current U.S. state did actually you know integrate Puerto Rico, they could still have problems of neo-colonialism and enforced backwardsness. And so really, you would have to you know you would have to address the economic question, not just the question of political rights. But I think the question of political rights is still very important and can't be underemphasized. But you also have to look at, you know, 
actual economic development, you know, between nations and how uneven economic development between nations is part of the inequality of nations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There would need to be some kind of like socialist form of reparations that would help build industry in these nations and make sure that they are on the footing that they can be on the footing of other like socialist nations that would be a part of the larger socialist government. And this is really how you achieve the withering away of the state and of nations, you know, because, you know, the way I look at it is that the proletariat will take power internationally. And as it takes power internationally, it launches, you know, a gradual process of the withering away of classes, the state and nations. But all three of these things, because they're connected, have to be, you know, attacked on different fronts. But you can't just simply abolish them immediately. Well, um, the... Example of the United States kind of segues into the third uh, chapter, third essay pretty well, which I think is basically at the core of her argument throughout, even if it's she's not stating it in these terms all the time. It's the one on federation, centralization, and particularism. And um, she, she has this interesting way of characterizing the anarchist view of nations. She, you know, kind of mocks them as basically, you know, wanting the liberté, égalité, fraternité of nations, um, and and uh, she accuses them in the first essay of uh, worshiping the nation state, which is not something I normally hear leveled at anarchists. But she has, you know, very specific uh, uh, historical examples in mind. Anyway, um, she ends up making an argument that. Like there's medieval sort of particularism, which was a pre-bourgeois and pre-absolutist like form of state that was extremely decentralized, except have, you know, there being like a small central figure in a lot of the fiefdoms and that, you know, there would still be, you know, emperors, you know, trying to vie for different fiefdoms or whatever, but a lot of power was dispersed. And um, through the sort of uh, absolutist tradition that is most uh, most often represented by like the French, uh, it paves the way of the kind of centralization in political life that you see in in the modern state in in all life. Uh, it paves the way for the bourgeois state, and um, she makes an interesting distinction between the kind of autonomy that you get in bourgeois societies uh, versus the particularism in, in medieval and feudal kind of societies. Um, she sees autonomy as being kind of <laughs> the other of bourgeois centralization. Like it's sort of always there and it kind of helps it. You know, it's like the unity of opposites, you know, they co-determine. Um, it's, I thought this was pretty interesting. The only thing about this is that for her, uh, confederation, this equality of nations nonsense being put into political form is inherently reactionary and the dialectical flux of, of you know, not condemning anything categorically doesn't apply to federalism. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, I don't know, the way Lenin looked at federalism was actually different because he kind of saw federalism as a way to further the 
to allow for the rights of national minorities while still kind of furthering the abolition of a nation state. You kind of saw it as like a, a midpoint, and that's kind of how the early Soviet Union was designed. Yeah, Luxembourg characterizes that as an anarchist style argument. I mean, anarchist what Stalin moved away from specifically, like right after Lenin died, basically. And I think that it's, you know, they're... I think that overall, the Soviet Union might have been better if it went more on Lenin's earlier model. It was definitely a better model for that circumstance than just like, you know, Russian chauvinism and Russification. Yeah. Um, there's, there's also an attitude here towards centralization that I think we associate with a kind of... Uh, unrefined mid-period Marx and Engels that are kind of like, fuck yeah, centralize that shit. That's the way we're going to pave, you know, that, that's we that's that homogenization that we need to pave the way for freedom. Things get real Hegelian real quick, and not just in the, in the logic, but in the sense of we should, you know, build up this massive apparatus to transcend it, which is a dangerous line of thought. <laughs> Oh, I think that like you have to have centralization, but I think it's interesting because in the 1850 address to the Communist League, Marx talks about we need to form a republic based on pure centralization. But then like Engels actually like yeah. has a note that he adds to it and says, well, actually, you know, we actually do need like some kind of self-government of municipalities with a degree of autonomy and the two kind of keep each other in balance. And the point of centralization is a central essentially to ensure that the, the, you know, the needs of particular, you know, of put the particular don't overcome like, the needs of the whole. It's to, um, you know, deal with the issue of particularist interests that are contrary to the needs of everyone else. For example, just, you know, reactionary localities, for example. Yes, that is a more respectable position that Engels ends up with. And I think Marx also moderates his views on this. But Engels also has on authority, which is a massive troll. And, uh, and pretty, pretty awesome in a way, but you know, also like after Stalin, you know, you can't read it the same. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think that the thing with anarchism that Rosa Luxemburg is right on is that I think like a lot of anarchists were just straight up nationalists, like Bakun and yeah. was a straight up pan-Slavic yeah. nationalist. And I think a federalism for a lot of anarchists was in a way an attempt to maintain the nation state while still having like a, a global society, like the federation, like the, the free I mean, agreement between federations would solve the problem, I guess. Kind I of mean, a, a lot of them still are nationalists, though, like the ones that fetishize Rojava and like things like that. It's just they are still nationalists in ways and like. I don't maybe it comes from like um sort of like a liberalism that's within anarchism I guess I I don't know. And that's the implication that Luxembourg makes. Yeah. Or you know, direct enunciation. Um but I think she does make a pretty decent argument for it, um especially when she draws in the United States and the I, I had the experience of reading the Federalist and State and Revolution for the first time side by side in college, kind of comparing two founding documents. There's kind of a common thread running through them about centralization. When you look at the United States Civil War, 
um, it's really hard to not see things this way. And that, that's and when I first was encountering, you know, why would anyone ever oppose a national liberation? Someone, you know, says to me, well, isn't the Confederacy kind of a national liberation movement? Don't they kind of have a claim to cultural autonomy in a way? Like, and that's kind of the argument I love to hear speaking is that she says not every claim to nationhood is progressive just by nature of being a claim to nationhood and that you have to look at the historical circumstances and the general you know development of world history and then from there yeah. you examine the concrete situation and determine if it's progressive or not yeah you know? and, and i think that's yeah. that's really the methodology that we should be using i think and as, think, as as uncomfortable as I am about, you know, eliminating traditions, you know, like the Southern way of life, that there are certain traditions that, you know, do deserve to die and should enjoy that sort of... I mean, I just assert the word tradition itself with, you know, hierarchical pre-capitalist societies and forms of, you know, basically exploitation and patriarchy. But I think that overall, Luxembourg is on centralization. He says that the centralization of states on a world level is generally a progressive tendency of capitalism. And I think this is generally correct. That the movement from basically this feudal patchwork of sovereignties, for, for example, look at the way China was before um, the you know classic revolution of 47. Like it was basically a patchwork of like different um, you know provinces ruled by warlords who are like paid off by the british or other colonial powers and so this tendency for capitalism to develop centralized nation states is progressive relative to this tendency a lot of human culture is traditional and if, and if it wasn't and if and if we hate tradition so much why do we bother with marxism it's not something that's like alive in our personal well because nobody wants to destroy like all the past culture itself and nobody wants to make it, you know, impossible to ever access, you know, culture that was the result of patriarchal or right. other like, than maybe Maoist, perhaps. So it's not like a question of literally destroying culture. It's a question of destroying literal social relations. Yeah, like I don't um, mind sweet tea, you know, like the, the South. Oh, yeah, exactly. Sweet tea. Yeah, but that's that's a that's a drink. Like tradition is like a way of life. Yeah, it's a you way know? of structuring society in a way. Tradition. And it generally is a patriarchal and, you know, it, it's generally a patriarchal way of structuring life. And so, so I, you know, I, cultural I, that can coexist with this, that can continue to exist with the, de with the destruction of the traditional way of life that it might be associated with. Like, I think that it's, you know, there it's, it's already happens all the time with the secular, it's just already a, like a thing that happens in, a lot of you know religions a lot of modern religions are basically more and more secularized and more and more you know in line with modern democratic you know ideals you know yeah i guess i just think more or less especially because there's no like left alternative way to live people vacillate between bourgeois nihilism and the collected you know traditions of the world or their local traditions or whatever and that it's pretty important that Marxists just aren't total modernists and pave over everything because people will why, why? check that. Well, like, because there are some, I don't know, there's some like flavor to the world that's people will fight for, even though it seems dumb. There's a part in this essay where she's making fun of someone that tells a story about um, 
shibboleth versus sibboleth, you know, resulting in like a blood feud. But there's some, you know, weird butthole twitch, irrational shit in human culture and not all of it. The real is not all rational there. And um, socialists have to like get, I don't know how else to say normies, but, you know, proles, like everyday people, like on board with this project. Like, and, and if you just, I don't know, if you hit those cultural buttons, you're kind of missing a lot of the point. Or to the extent that you do hit cultural buttons, you have to be very targeted. Well, I mean, I guess my point is, yeah, you're right. It doesn't need to be carefully targeted, but, you know, tradition is associated with a lot of the most reactionary, like, aspects. And yeah, people will fight to defend it, but they'll also fight to, you know, do a lot of other heinous shit as well. I mean, generally, when people are fighting for tradition, they're fighting in the name of reaction against, you know, a more egalitarian form of life. Yeah, Some, like sometimes, sometimes the new form of life is less egalitarian. <laughs> Like, that does happen. I mean, you can make that case for some indigenous struggles, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I guess you can make yeah, that. Well, I mean, that's, but that's like pre, like, you know, feudal era. You know what I mean? Like, that's like a culture that's sort of skirted all that a little bit. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, have, we obviously all have, like, more sympathies for, like, the indigenous struggles as opposed to, like, but... Like yeah. something like Hindu nationalism. I don't wanna, I don't wanna, like, like, there's a lot of very reactionary ideologies in the third world. Yeah. Yeah, like Hasidic Judaism or whatever, you know. Well, there's um, just Hindu nationalism in India, for example, is a really yeah. big problem because it's used to oppress the Muslim minority and the whole issue of, you know, you know, the oppression of, you know, Muslims in India is like a real thing. And there's kind of like this almost apologia for Hinduism. That's kind of, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's like, problematic. And it's, 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 you know, an attempt to kind of like, because like a lot of the national liberation movement of India was actually based in Hindu nationalism. Right. And so it kind of gets like a, you know, the left kind of has a soft spot for it. So it doesn't really get condemned as much as it should. Whereas like, you know, someone like Bashar al-Assad, this is where Rose Luxemburg is right and where she shows how the idea of the right of nations of self-determination can essentially be used to support reactionary class forces that are, you know, like, and I think the way that people say that by supporting Bashar al-Assad in Syria, they're supporting Syria's right to self-determination are actually, you know, that's, it's just an opportunistic way to say that, you know, this government um, authentically represents this mythical Syrian people. So therefore we have to support it against, you know, anything else that might happen. Yeah, but I think this text is more relevant to like the Kurds. When I think of Syria, I'm thinking, and I, and this pamphlet, I'm thinking about the Kurds, you know, not, not the Syrians nation, you know what I mean? Well, yeah. And oftentimes like people who are, you know, very pro-Assad say that, you know, the Kurds are just the minority nationality that should die with history. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, like that's Jack. Yeah, exactly. And you can say, oh, well, you know, Marx said the same thing about the Czech Republic back in the day. So there is, you know, a problem there, I think. But I think Marx's views on this stuff did advance beyond, you know, the kind of, oh, colonialism is progressive because it expands the world market to where he actually, you know, Marx and Engels actually start saying, well, 
Indian independence actually has to happen if, you know, revolution is going to happen. And Irish independence is also important for fighting chauvinism in the English working class. And black, you know, freedom struggles in the South are extremely important. You know, there was a recognition in Marx and Engels, you know, of the rights of, of the necessary, of, of the necessary struggle for these kind of democratic rights that were related to national oppression. Well, so just to pick up on the thread of Hindu nationalism, I guess my overall point is if you want to fight Hindu nationalism, is it going to be most effective and, and is it essential for the communist cause to appeal only to universalistic edgy atheism in order to fight Hindu nationalism? Or does someone that is within that tradition but is doing an imminent critique of it in the kind of communist direction, doesn't that sound like maybe it's, you know, working with the tradition in, in a in a way that's like gonna be more persuasive, gonna I mean, be gonna I result in a better politic. Like I just think it's more likely that religious people who become communists will just become more secular and separate the two spheres of life, basically. And secularization rather than this kind of like I'm changing the religious belief into this kind of liberation theology. I think that might happen in some cases, but I, I don't even I think, think it's more likely that secular it will be just like people will secularize. I, I think I think communists really overplay how secular they are. Like communists do not act like secular people. Secular people for the most part are are, are more nihilistic. Like like communists communists are constantly oblivious to how like kind of religious seeming we are. And, um, well, that's a whole other debate, but I mean, generally, no, like communism defends. I think that's important. <laughs> I think communism I defends like the idea of secularization, like as a progressive thing. We, we, but we got we've all accepted Jesus into our heart, right? Yeah, we've all done that, right? I kind of. I mean, we all, we all have faith in class of society and world. All right, we're all the community of believers, and the. I mean, I'm all down for you know saying the communist party should be like the church of you know tomorrow and. You know, we're all the community of believers in the Marxist program and the idea of human emancipation and blah, blah, blah. Like all that stuff can be phrased in a religious way that can be very inspiring and almost Sorellian. And I think for purposes of propaganda, you know, it can be useful. But we still have to, you know, be rational and scientific and secular, I think. Yeah, I guess, um, I don't know. When I look back on societies that aren't, in the modern world, some of them have a way of fusing, like, you know, straight up religion in with rationality. It's it's just sort of tangential to the text, but I think it's an important point about tradition in general. When think and because there's an extended commentary on the way capitalism. Oh, I mean, religion at the end. Well, I think religion is a big part of kind of like the linguistic cultural element that actually yes, exactly. like creates a basis for nationalism in many cases. Because American nationalism, which is, you know, I'd say the most oppressive form of nationalism that exists, you know, it's the idea of, you yeah. know, we're a, we're a Christian nation that's based on Christian values. And after World War II, it becomes Judeo-Christian values because all of a sudden Jews are part of America now, and so are Italians and Irish, et cetera. Yeah, and so Jews are just discount Christians. And so, yeah, now it's just like, oh, we all like Jesus, you know, but we have different faiths. Before it was very much like Protestantism was the American faith. 
So, yeah, like, I mean, just the example of American nationalism is a very useful way of looking at how nationalism is constructed. It's constructed from, you know, cultural linguistic factors, but it's these things are very much open to being changed by changing conditions. And that the kind of cultural linguistic factors of American nationalism have actually kind of weakened the kind of the idea of, you know, a white Protestant stock at the heart of the nation that existed in a lot of American nationalism is, you know, it's been replaced by this liberal idea that of, you know, a kind of, you know, social contract type nationalism. I just think that um, left comms in general, who I think they would take, it would, it would be good for them to read this text more like closely, I think, because I think things are more nuanced than the way that they interpret Luxembourg in a lot of cases. I'm not, this isn't, I'm not saying it's for all left comms, but a lot of left comms do claim to defend Luxembourg against Lenin do kind of, you know, take, like, for example, how many times it's just like, you know, for example, like with the ICT, every time there's like a tragedy in, you know, Palestine and Israel, like it's, it's always like an article about how Palestinian nationalism is bad and how Hamas is bad. And it's just, it's, it's really indistinguishable almost from the neocon knee-jerk reaction, I think. Mm. And so there is this kind of, I guess, you know, people talk about color blindness. There's also you know, like national oppression. So there is like a kind of nation blind attitude you can take towards these questions that, you know, is, is problematic. And I think Luxembourg can be read in a way that doesn't encourage that type of thinking because she kind of argues for taking everything in its context. Though there are in, you know, I wouldn't say it's, you know, without flaws though. Well, I think, you know, because the nation, even as a concept, is like an intrinsically mystifying thing, and a thing that's kind of designed to obscure, like, the antagonism between classes, there's, I could see, like, a really strong, almost, like, Sternerite temptation to just, like, say the nation is a spook, and they're all bad, and so fuck every nation, no matter what the circumstances are. And what's, you know, I think the the peculi- the peculiarities that always exist within any sort of national question or conflict between nations or national rebellion or re- re- revolution or whatever you know are at once like are really the source of like the fascination of the national question as a subject for debate like in far left circles and also it's part it's part of its fascination and Maybe it's outside, it's sometimes, at least in a contemporary sense, like outsized importance that it sometimes takes in conversations and, and debates and like the, the discourse, you know, like for instance, uh, you know, just like the, like the questions about Rahava, for instance, which is something we have almost no agency over anyway. But I remember there were a few years where it was like the first thing everybody was debating. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that. Well, I think it's different today because we live in a post-colonial world that the national like colonialism basically doesn't exist anymore, except in you know various like for example you could say like Israel and Palestine you have settler colonialism, but basically for the most part colonialism does not exist anymore, and so the kind of obsession with you know nationalism of the press does kind of is out of it's out of stage with the actual task that. You know, and what really is more important is kind of the ideal of a world socialist republic. But I think that the romantic aspect of nationalism, because of that, it kind of does get an undue amount of attention from the left because it does have this kind of romantic aspect. 
And I think that's why, despite the national question being less important than ever, it gets more attention from the left than ever. Overall, I think this text is useful for addressing the kind of moves towards Balkanization within the Western Europe and the kind of waves of referenda around like Catalan independence or Scottish independence, independence and even Brexit to a ways. That's really where I see this as being most useful. And when you're talking about something like Palestine or colonial incursions into Africa by the Chinese state or something like it, you'd be much better off reading the Leninists or like Fanon or, you know, Something yeah, else. I was even going to suggest maybe we should actually read some of Rent Lenin's writings on this topic. And because Lenin, I think he's also more, from what I've read on him on nationalism, he's actually more nuanced than a lot of his followers would be. He's very much like, he's also very, he's very aware that, you know, a lot of these movements, a lot of nationalism, even if it's anti-colonial or anti-Western or whatever, it can still be a reactionary movement that's not worth supporting. And you know, I think Lenin's views are more nuanced than what a lot of people actually grant him and who follow him claim. Yeah, reading this certainly makes me want to read, you know, the what she's responding to, or, or perhaps I guess Lenin might be responding to her, because she's the OG here. Yeah, well, I think, um, in a way, Kotsky was the OG, because I think the right True. of nations of self-determination, I think, actually comes from Kotsky. Because, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that's where it comes from, at least. I haven't, unfortunately, that Kotsky article that's cited a lot in here isn't translated yet, but. Gotta learn yeah. Kotsky. Yeah, gotta learn Kraut speak. <laughs> I was gonna say that um, I think the, the main problem, the main like actual like useful aspect of kind of the critique of nationalism is how it's a cross-class unity thing, how it promotes cross-class unity and how therefore communist employment of nationalism and alliances of nationalism are basically a risky venture that you don't want to enter into. And that basically the communist party needs to have a sort of independence from nationalism and distinguish itself from nationalist parties through internationalism. And I think um, what's interesting is there was a Marxist from India, M.N. Roy, who actually thought that, um, for example, like, they thought that the um, the Comintern was wrong in their idea of allying itself with the national bourgeoisie in the colonial countries. And his argument was that the national bourgeoisie wasn't revolutionary in the Russian Revolution, which was backwards and mostly peasant. So we shouldn't expect the national bourgeoisie to be revolutionary, per se, in the third world countries. And so therefore, the whole policy of aligning with the national bourgeoisie, even if it's in the name of anti-colonial revolution, really doesn't make any sense. I think that's an interesting critique that was um, raised in the commentary and debates on this. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can like our Facebook page or leave us a good review on iTunes or you could send us some money you can do so through PayPal if you just want to give a one time donation of whatever that would be at swampsidechats at gmail.com 
Or you could check out our Patreon. We have one of those now. All of our content remains unlocked. We're not putting anything behind a paywall. But there are a couple of bonuses if you want to subscribe. I think one is you get the you get the podcast like a day early before it's on the SoundCloud. You get uh, at five bucks, I think you get to listen to us live while we're doing it, if you want. And I think at ten bucks, you get to if you subscribe for three months, you can you can make us read something. I should probably know that for sure or have it in front of me while I'm recording this, but... So you can do that. We appreciate it. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>